Good morning yet again. Uh, my name is Joshua Torrey. I'm a ruling elder at Redeemer Presbyterian in Austin. I've been asked once already where my uh, wife and kids are. Don't worry, everything is good at home. Um, they just are busy serving at Redeemer, uh, doing communion prep and teaching Sunday school. And my son is giving a brief biography report on the, the late Tim Keller uh, for his Sunday school class. Uh, they really wish they could be here, especially my oldest two children. They like to uh, give me grades after my sermon based upon the quality of the jokes. Uh, they would have been very disappointed today because that's about the only joke I have. Um, I bit off way more than I could chew with 10 verses. I felt like it was uh, appropriate to cover all 10 verses. And throughout the week, I was trying to trim down every other uh, side thought that I had. If you turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, we will be starting in verse 5. I'll let you turn your way there and let your eyes glaze back over some of the the rest of the chapter, uh, because verse 5 does not start without some important context. Philippians 2, verse 5 through 15. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation." among whom you shine as lights in the world. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy Father, open our hearts to the work of your spirit and open our minds and lives that they may be conformed into the image of your son, in whose name we pray. Amen. I'd like to return to one portion of my intro last week that I definitely failed to communicate well, and that is the socioeconomic diversity of the Philippian church. Uh, This is pretty important to understand why the church under pressure was cracking, and so I'd like to take another stab at that section of my intro. As a privileged colony of Rome, uh, the Philippian The city of Philippi would have had a lot of retired military. Um, You can think of a city in our modern-day context that's built on expats. Um, Serving the military was the fastest way to achieve Roman citizenship at that time. And so a lot of men would volunteer to serve in the Roman army in hope that upon conclusion, they would attain their citizenship and be assigned in retirement to one of these privileged cities. So there would have been a lot of ethnic and cultural diversity among these retired men and their families. 
Along with these retired men and their families, there would have been a large economic base to, sub- to sustain them, and this would have included a whole lot of room for slaves and commerce. There would have been a lot of diversity, a great amount of wealth in comparison to other cities. We see that in the fact that the Philippian church, both in Acts, in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, at the end of Philippians 4, um, the Philippian church is praised for their ability to almost essentially self-fund all of Paul's mission trips. But we get indications in this text, and, or in this book, that this diversity under pressure from the outside was actually causing division and strife. One of the places that we see that this diversity was causing potential divisions is later in chapter 2, which we're not going to be able to get to. But if you hop down about 10 verses, around verse 25, Paul is talking about Epaphroditus, who was sent to him to give the report about the Philippian church. And if we read the context in in thoroughness, we can understand that Epaphroditus was probably their pastor, and there's a, a sense in which the church seems to be mistreating him. If you turn over to Philippians chapter 4 at the beginning, we have one of the few times in which Paul names people by name and gives a rebuke. It happens to be two women, and he tells them that they need to stop quarreling. I would ask you to consider that those women were probably not quarreling over the carpet color or the best way to make some, some beef. It was probably a, two women who were strong leaders in the church who were causing substantial divisions because of their differences. And then finally, in the middle of chapter 4 in the book of Philippians, Paul writes to them about how he is happy that they have finally given to him in his moment of need because he had once been lacking from their lack of giving. All of these together allow commentators to suggest that the diversity amongst the Philippian church under the stresses of pressure from the outside and inside was causing them to crack. They were losing their unity and their joy. And Paul's solution from the front of the book to the back of the book is unity in joy and joy in unity. Now that unity we saw comes from striving in the gospel last week. We saw that unity coming from humility last week. And then we get another application of it today as Paul turns to Christ. But I wonder if we don't face the same issues today. In this country, we have a great number of diversity opinions. In an article yesterday in The Atlantic, an author reflecting on a new book called The Great Dechurching was evaluating the thesis of why people are leaving the church in droves. This author, reflecting on the book, writes that the defining problem driving out most people from the church is how American life works in the 21st century. Contemporary American, America simply isn't set up to promote mutuality, care, or common life. Rather, it is designed to maximize individual accomplishments as defined by professional and financial success. Such a system leaves precious little time or energy for forms of community that don't contribute to one's own personal life or, as one ages, the professional prospects of one's child. I think we can see that our diversity and our focus on our financial wealth and gain can cause just as much stress today as it did in the church of Philippi. And so with this in mind, we want to turn to Paul's continuing answer, starting in verse 5. 
His continuing answer to this problem, beginning with the mind of Christ, we're going to look this morning at the humiliation of Christ, the exaltation of Christ, and then eventually in verses 12 through 15, we get to look again at the humility of the church. Starting in verse 5, we read, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Um, Paul has given us some practical examples of what we can do in verses 2 and 4. He's mentioned being in one mind, but now he actually has to define what that mind is. And it's not just all of us agreeing on the same thing or agreeing on the same purpose, although that is important. We actually have to agree on the proper thing. We have to have the proper mind together, which is that of Jesus Christ. With this in mind, Paul jumps into what is known as the Christ hymn. This is verse 6 through verse 11. Um, you can imagine Paul at this point has gotten to a place where he's, he's flowing logically, so naturally it's a place for him to go on a tangent. Um, if you read verse 2 and 3 and 4, you can almost read them perfectly in conjunction with verse 14 as one stream of thought. But from 5 through 13, we get this break off from Paul's thought because he's, he's now got this in his mind. He's just told them, have this mind amongst yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, and then rabbit trail. Now this rabbit trail is not of his own making. It is actually a, um, a hymn. Commentators refer to it as the Christ hymn. It is assumed based upon the elements of the, the text between verse 6 and 11 that this was a well-known song that the church would have been singing. He's not quoting them this huge text, which it has a lot of doctrine in it, to teach them doctrine. It's actually flowing up out of him and flowing up out of their liturgy. This, you know, if you've been in a Baptist church, this can happen when a Baptist preacher gets very worked up and excited and starts singing one of those classic hymns to tie all the points back together. That's what Paul is doing here. He's reached a point, and he wants to drive it home, and he breaks out into song. This song is traditionally broken up into two sections. The verses 6 through 8 is considered the humiliation of Christ, And verses 9 through 11 are considered the exaltation of Christ. Naturally, the the humiliation portion is going to be where most of our application comes from. But it is going to be important for us to look at the the, um, exaltation of Jesus Christ as well. Uh, For those of y'all who are theology nerds, um, this is one of the biggest texts in terms of studying Christology. Christology being the study of the doctrine of Jesus Christ. Now, unfortunately, what men have taken years to do, we've got to cover in about five minutes. So if you're looking for resources on this, I would point you to the Westminster Larger Catechism versus, or questions 46 through question 54. It deals very extensively with the idea of the exaltation or the humiliation and exaltation of Jesus Christ. Looking towards this, we can start in verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, this being Jesus Christ, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Paul starts with the humiliation of Jesus Christ, maybe in an ironic spot. He doesn't just jump straight into how Christ humbled himself. He starts where the second person of the Trinity was before creation. Before all time, the second person of the Trinity was in his very form, God. 
This is in agreement with everything else in the New Testament that Jesus Christ truly is equal with God. But what is really insightful here is that this would have already been sung in the church. This wouldn't have not been new doctrine for them. They already knew this. They knew this from their weekly singing. They were affirming Jesus Christ truly as God. And the, last, and the second line says, not accounting equality with God a thing to be grasped. This is one of those times where, uh, I love the ESV, but the, the translation does not always help get you to the application. The Holman Christian Standard Bible translates this uh, verse, verse 6, in a much more practical way when it says that he did not count it as something to be used for his own advantage. The phrasing here in this verse 6 is an affirmation of who Jesus is fully as God and then a reaffirmation that he didn't use it for personal advantages. Instead, we see what he did in verse 7. He emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. Now this is very interesting because Jesus could have come in the likeness of a man and been wealthy. He could have come in the likeness of a man and been powerful. He could have come in the likeness of a man and been extremely good looking. But we know that that's not what he did. In fact, he took on the character and form of a servant, a lowly person. This should remind us of the passage in Isaiah chapter 53 that says, He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. We have Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, going from complete equality with God to as lowly and as humble as he could be. He took on the lowliest form of humanity possible. And that's not all he does. We see even further the depths of his humility when we move to verse 8. Being found in his human form, he's already humbled himself to become human, he humbles himself even more by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. It's from Paul that we get in Galatians 3.13 the stressed idea that death on a cross was the most embarrassing, shameful thing that could be done to an individual. In the Old Testament law, It said that anybody who was hung on a cross was cursed. Christ in his humility goes from the highest of highs to the lowest of possible lows. The man who is equal with God is hung in the most embarrassing situation possible. This is the mind of Christ that Paul wants us to have as we, in humility count others as more than ourselves. And this actually tells us two important things. There's two things that we can grab from this right away. The first is that humility is not thinking less of yourself. This is a repeat from last week, just in case you didn't catch it. Humility doesn't exist except in the case where a person actually has something, a skill, a talent, an opportunity, And instead of using those things for themselves, they use it for other people. They choose not to bolster themselves. Christ humbled himself from his state of divinity to the point of full self-giving for our redemption. 
while our humility will never accomplish as much as what Christ did, it is an example of what humility in our lives is supposed to look like and drive towards. The second thing that Christ's example here shows us is that there's no level of sanctification, theological education, or moral superiority that should prevent us from being humble. Maybe it, it, it stands to be argued. If the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son, can humble himself, then there's no amount of reformed doctrine, memorized scripture, or good ethics that should have you thinking of yourself more than somebody else. The humility of Jesus Christ points us to the direction of complete lifting up of one another. But Paul doesn't stop here with the humility of Christ. We have to turn briefly to the exaltation of Christ, both because it's, it's Jesus and we, we need to exalt him, just like Paul does, but also because there are some things to learn here. Verse 9, 10, and 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and, at the, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I would tell you that while the idea of humility is, is definitely more in line with Paul's context in chapter 2, this exaltation is important because it shows us what God does to the humble person. The humble Jesus Christ, the humble person who dies a death on a cross, is exalted above all others. We know in the Old Testament that names are important. Names typically come with meaning. Um, we know what the name Jesus means in, in general. Um, Yahweh saves or God saves. But it's important that we see in the context of what Paul is, is quoting here, that remember, again, that this is a song. He is saying that at Jesus' name, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess. Uh, I loved the, the scripture reading that we had this morning from Isaiah, I think it was chapter 42, um, where God talks about being unwilling to share his glory with another. And yet here we see that God is sharing his glory with the Son. If you had turned to a different passage in Isaiah, you would read that God saying, By myself I have sworn... From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return to me. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. You know who's saying that in Isaiah? Yahweh. Paul is affirming here, the church was affirming when they sang this, that God exalted Jesus Christ not just as the greatest thing of creation, because he wasn't a created being, but he actually was one with the Father. He was, in fact, equal with Yahweh. We see in this that God is willing for the humble person to follow the example of Jesus Christ. We know that not only in his humility do we have some application, but also in Jesus Christ's exaltation, we can be assured that God is not going to leave us in a state of humility after this life. We too will be raised with Jesus Christ. We too are called to be joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And it's with that 
idea in mind that God is not done with us yet now in our humility as we humble ourselves one with another, that Paul moves back into application starting in verse 12. We see in verse 13 and also earlier in verse 8 of chapter 1 that there is this assurance that God is not done working. And so as we move through this application here in the conclusion of the sermon, I want you to understand that there, there is no sense of judgment here if you are not yet as humble as you think you could be. God has promised to do this work in us in verse 13. In verse 8 of chapter, sorry, not verse 8 of chapter 1, verse 6 of chapter 1, Paul's assurance that God who has begun a good work will begin it and bring it about to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. So let's turn to this application with assurance that the Lord is working in us to cause it to be. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This verse has been used many times in doctrinal debate over whether or not we can lose our own salvation. I do not have the time to answer that question for you this morning, but I happen to know that you have a pastor who can. So I don't know what your beverage of choice is, whether it be beer, wine, scotch, coffee, water, lemonade, you should buy him one, and he can explain to you how this verse has been used in the context of those doctrinal debates. But I would tell you up front that I think that the ESV and most translations do a very bad job translating what the ESV reads as work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Let me tell you why. The phrase your own salvation is actually plural. If you have a King James version of the Bible, when you read in the, in the Gospels, we have the these and the thous that help to distinguish between singular and plural. In modern translations, we don't have that. And so you miss the fact that this actually is a, a statement of plurality. Paul is encouraging the church together to work out their salvation. If I can offer you a Texas translation, I lied to you, this is kind of a joke. If I can offer you a Texas translation, Paul is saying, all y'all work out y'all's salvation. <laughs> this is very different from you sitting on your own, worried about whether or not your salvation is coming about. Fear and trembling is not a, oh my goodness, it, am, I, am, I, am I there? It's an understanding of the humility and the knowledge of where the power comes from. It's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his own pleasure. Fear and trembling comes from the knowledge that God provides both the power and the desire. John Calvin says on this passage, hence we act only when he has prepared us for acting. When we are working in humility one with another, when we are working out our salvation together as a corporate body, it is God who is working through us for that. It's his good pleasure and will for it to happen and occur. And he is going to bring it about. 
But that doesn't leave us without some practical application. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. This is the most cited verse in my house. (laughs) Paul knows that we could do these things one for another between verses 2 and 4, but we could do it with a bad attitude. Do all these things without grumbling or disputing. Now, we don't know what Paul really means with the disputing. Uh, when we look at the actual context of the, of the book, um, it's possible that the, the church was disputing with, within themselves. Maybe they were disputing with their pastor, Epaphroditus. Maybe uh, some commentators suggest that there was conflict enough that they were taking their disputes to the pagan courts like they were in 1 Corinthians. But I think that we can accept and understand just a general broad sense in which this applies to everything that we do. I would ask you to go back to the example of Christ and consider with yourself, can you imagine Christ complaining to the Father about his call to humbleness? Paul pointing us back to Jesus Christ in his application tells us that when we do all these things, when we're loving one another, when we're caring for one another, when we're thinking of one another more than ourselves, when we're striving side by side for the gospel, reflecting back on chapter, or verse 27 of chapter 1, that we may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Now I know that evangelism uh, requires words. If you've ever uh, given it thought, the gospel is not on display in your life as a as a complete um, as a complete testimony. It's the truths of the gospel that we live out, but the actual reality, the actual substance of the gospel, does require words. But when we read this, it's our behavior. It's the way we love one another and we care for one another that shines as a light amongst the crooked and twisted generation. This is very much in line with what Jesus said in Matthew 5, where he talks about us being a light of the world. It's not our moral superiority. It's not our great ethics. It's not even necessarily great acts or deeds. It's simply not being selfish and ambitious, not being conceited. And we have to do it together. This isn't something you get to sit off on your own and do, but we have to do it together. Returning to verse 27 of verse of chapter one that we addressed last week. When Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come or whether I'm absent, I may hear you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Recall that earlier reflection on our cultural state. Contemporary America simply isn't set up to promote mutuality, care, or common life. There are a lot of ways, practical ways, in fact, that the world tries to solve this problem. 
We see it in our desire to identify more strongly with politics or sexual orientation or even gender expression. But real community and unity can only come from centering a body of people around the mind of Christ. Living a life worthy of the gospel, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, is a broadcast to the corrupt world around us. When we dwell deeply in the reality of everything Christ has done for us, they see that light. And doesn't that get to the counterculture nature of the gospel and the church? That Christ, through his mediating work, is bringing together a community unlike any other. This is why we gather together to worship and sing. This is why we're told not to forsake the assembly. It's why baptism occurs in front of the whole church. It's why we take communion together instead of separately. You ever thought about that? Why can't I just take communion at home? I got bread and wine at home. Got tons of it. That's not what we're called to do. We're called to be in it together. Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection is forging a humble community unlike any other. And he has promised to continue doing it until the day of his return. You have every confidence of his promises. Promises offered to us again this morning. Let's pray. Gracious Father, may... The sacrifice and example of your son move us towards love of you and love of neighbor. May we, in the midst of our own unique trials and persecutions, take to ourselves the mind of humility that your glorious son had. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen.